Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm starting now in Mark, chapter 6. Chapter 5, we had Jesus healing the Gadarene demoniac, coming back across the Sea of Galilee, back to his home base at Capernaum. There he healed the synagogue leader, Jairus' daughter, and on the way, he healed the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. There were some other events recorded in parallel passages and the other synoptics, which, of course, we didn't cover as we went over Mark chapter 5. And here we are now as Jesus leaves Capernaum to go back to his hometown, to Nazareth. So we start in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there, that means Capernaum, and came to his hometown, that's Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. Now, it's... His hometown is Nazareth, according to the NIV Study Bible, and Adam Clark says it's probably Nazareth. The NIV Study Bible says it's definitely Nazareth, and I think it's definitely Nazareth. I don't know why Clark showed any doubt about it. That's where he grew up. It's not Bethlehem, because it's never written anywhere that Jesus ever went back to Bethlehem, according to John Gill. So we're going to take it's Nazareth. And we see that it was on a Sabbath. We go down to verse 2 in Mark 6 which we haven't gotten to yet, but Mark 2, chapter 6, verse 2 says this, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. So he's going back on a Saturday. Now, there's a question, a harmony question here. This is probably the second visit to Nazareth. Another visit to Nazareth is recorded in Luke chapter 4, 16 through 30. Now, Robertson, the famous harmonist, says this was earlier at the beginning of his ministry, and this is at the very uh, at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, and this is at the very close of it. So it's two different situations. The, the situation in Luke chapter 4, if you recall, he went there. He quoted verse, He taught in the synagogue. He quoted verses from Isaiah. He said, basically, you're looking at the Son of God. You know, the Son of God is here in your presence. They got real mad at him. They took him to the edge of the cliff where they were getting ready to throw him off, and he went back through the crowd. They failed to kill him. So he had a very rough reception. He's gone back at the end of his Galilean ministry, and Robertson says this makes sense. He's going to give him another chance. Well, some harmonists, however, say there was only one visit, and this is what Jameson, Foss, and Brown say. I'm going to take the two-visit view. Assume this is a different visit. We go down to Mark chapter 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? So you see there were two things that the synagogue crowd was impressed with concerning Jesus. One, his teaching, and two, his miracles. And that's typically why people went out to see him. Jesus taught with grace, power, and authority. The rabbis just quoted rabbinical authority. So-and-so says, and Rabbi Ben Solomon El Gezer said this, and Boring as heck, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The deaf speak, the blind see, and that kind of thing. There's a big difference between the way Jesus taught and the way those rabbis taught. And so they were astonished. They knew that Jesus had never been to any theological school. He had never been mentored by lettered doctors. He was just the carpenter's son, as they're going to go to great pains to point out in the next verse. Now, it sounds like they were they had never heard of these miracles and such until they started happening up in Capernaum. So it's really amazing. Jesus, for 30 years, grew up in Nazareth, and nobody ever heard of him. He had lived in obscurity because he hadn't started his ministry yet. He hadn't gone down to, to near Jerusalem and gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit at the hands of John the Baptist. But now he's equipped and empowered for his ministry, and he's doing his ministry. And, ah, oh, now the people of Nazareth are starting to say, wait a minute, that's the Jesus we knew. My goodness, how can this be? Going on to that chapter 
6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the people, the Nazarenes continue? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Matthew says, isn't this the carpenter's son? And Mark says, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Jesus was a carpenter and so was Joseph, so there's no conflict there. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Offended, all that beautiful teaching, and all they do is get offended. Where does he get all these things from? Well, the son of Mary, of course, that's the Virgin Mary. Joseph is not mentioned, of course. I say, of course, he's not mentioned, which makes people tend to think that perhaps he's dead. We'll note that previously in Capernaum, when Jesus, Mary, Mary and her and Jesus' brothers came to Capernaum to rescue Jesus from the crowds because he was beside himself. Joseph wasn't with him, so people deduce from that that Joseph has probably died by now, and Joseph is not mentioned here either, So, which tends to make you think that he's gone. Now, why were they offended by him? Offended by him? Why? Well, because a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And Jesus is going to quote that proverb in just a minute because they're just thinking, how can he's just a nobody? He's just, and this, these questions that they're asking, is they're done in a tone of contempt. They're not asking for information. Is this the carpenter, the son of Mary? No, they say, what is this? This is the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of these common people, these common carpenters, these carpenter's sons, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters, they're just ordinary girls. What's going on here? Why does he think he's such a big shot rabbi? That's how they were acting. These people in Nazareth, they were a tough crowd. Jesus answers, well, before I go any further, I guess, I need to talk about James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, the brothers of Jesus. Now, I don't know why the Jews did this, but they had this terrible habit of just naming people by their first name, and as a result, you can't tell anybody apart. And so people spill gallons of ink trying to decide who's who. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give a short summary of all this. His brother James, because Paul in Galatians 1 mentioned that he went down and saw nobody in Jerusalem except James, the Lord's brother. That's the same brother here, the Lord's brother. So that means that this James, the Lord's brother here, is the guy who didn't believe in Jesus until afterwards, and then he was one of the pillar apostles in the church of Jerusalem. So he's kind of famous. And many people say also he wrote the book of James, which I suspect is true. Again, all of the, a lot of this is speculation, but I believe that's pretty... The general consensus seems to be that this is the same James that was the chief one of the chief apostles at the church in Jerusalem was also the guy that wrote the book of James. And the next brother is Joseph. Now, some people speculate this is Joseph, the also known as Barabbas, also known as Justice, who was nominated to take Judas Iscariot's place after he betrayed Jesus. And the apostles had two guys they drew by lot to pick. And Joseph, also known as Barabbas, also known as Justice, lost, and Matthias was picked. Some people speculate this is the same Joseph. I don't know why, but it's just speculation. The next brother of Jesus is Simon. Some people say that he's Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is listed in the list of apostles as, in the several list of the apostles, as one of the, the twelve apostles, and so people speculate that Jesus appointed his brother, chose one of his actual brother as one of the apostles. This is total speculation. We don't know. The last Judas, of course, is not Judas Iscariot, but many people say this is the same Judas, also known as Thaddeus, who was one of the apostles and who wrote the book of Jude. I think there's more evidence for that. So it could be that Jude, 
Jesus had one of his brothers as one of the apostles. He definitely had James, and maybe Judas was too. Those are all speculations. I'm not going to worry about it too much. Now, poor old Mary. Now, isn't his mother called Mary? Plain Mary. This is what Gill says about Mary. Of course, this is the Virgin Mary that's worshipped by Catholics all over the world now. Quote, plain Mary, without any other title or civil respect, a poor spinstress that got her bread by her hard, by her hand labor. The Jews say she was a plater of women's hair and treat her with the utmost scorn. Well, that's ironic. She hadn't got scorn now. Now they worship her as a god, unfortunately. Now this term brothers is kind of interesting. Jesus' brothers, that's, that's a, it seems like an innocuous term, but actually gallons of ink have been spilt on describing who these brothers are. Now let's look at some options. Before I get going, let's just say that, let me see if I can find a, well, let me just put it this way. Who these brothers are determines or helps determine a grave theological bone of contention between Protestants and Catholics because Catholics believe that Mary was perpetually virgin, that she was a virgin when she had Jesus, and that she was a virgin for the rest of her life while she was living with Joseph. Now, I think that's absolute hogwash, but a lot of people believe it. Well, if I'm right, or excuse me, if the Catholics are right that Jesus had brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and Mary was a virgin, then that means James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas could not have been Joseph's sons because Joseph kept her as a perpetual virgin. So then the question is, well, then who are these guys, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They're called brothers by the scriptures here in Matthew and in, uh, and in uh, Mark. So who are these guys? Well, here's some options. They could be the sons of Joseph by a former wife. In other words, Joseph was already married. He had been married when he met Mary, and his former wife had died, and Joseph had brothers and married Mary. So therefore, these four brothers are stepbrothers of Jesus. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that's unlikely, and Clark agrees, and this is... Clark's logic here, quote, Why should the children of another family be brought in here to share a reproach, which it is evident was designed for Joseph the carpenter? Mary his wife, Jesus the son, and their other children. Prejudiced apart, would not any person of plain common sense suppose from this account that these were the children of Joseph and Mary and the brothers and sisters of our Lord according to the flesh? It seems odd that this should be doubted. But through an unaccountable prejudice, Papists and Protestants are determined to maintain as a doctrine that on which the that on which the scriptures are totally silent, viz. the perpetual virginity of the mother of our Lord. And what Clark is saying is, look, all these brothers are mentioned as a means of to show scorn, to show reproach to Jesus. What is this guy trying to be a rabbi when he has these kids? These these kids are his brothers. Well, why would he bring in half brothers from another marriage? Why would the Nazarenes bring in half brothers from another marriage to say that this is a merely Jesus? Well, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I don't I don't think that the argument is ironclad by any chance, but it is kind of interesting. It would be more likely that they would bring in his actual blood brothers to 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 nail down the fact that he is just of an ordinary family here in in Nazareth. All right, well, that's the first option. Of course, that's the Catholic option. Here's another option. That's, that's, that's one Catholic option. These brothers could be sons of Mary by a husband other than Joseph. In other words, Joseph dies, Mary remarries, and then she has more kids. Now, that would not be a Catholic option because then Mary would not be a perpetual virgin, but it could be, a, 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 I'd say, a Protestant option. Then these brothers of Jesus would be half-brothers. Okay, maybe so. 
Or they could be Joseph's nephews, Jesus's, and which would make them Jesus's cousins. That's because the Jews often call cousins brethren, and they do that. I mean, in China, I had a million Chinese people do that to me. Oh, he's my brother, he's my brother, he's my brother. And it turns out they were talking about cousins. I've got five brothers. I said, I thought there was a one-child policy in China. Oh, oh, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean cousin. And then they go fish for the right word. All right, here's the argument for this, that these four guys that are mentioned are Jesus' cousins, not his brothers, because, goes the argument, it would be unlikely that Jesus, dying on the cross, would have recommended Mary to John instead of his brothers, if his brothers were still living. If James, Jude, and Simon, and Joseph were brothers, Jesus would have said, send her to one of these guys, send her to James, send her to Jude, send her to Simon, send her to Joseph. But instead he said, you take care of her. So the argument goes, therefore, James, Jude, and Simon, therefore there must not have been anybody left for Jesus to commend because to commend Mary to, so he defaulted to John. So therefore the four guys that are mentioned must not have been brothers but cousins, James, Jude, Simon, and Joseph. Well, the answer to that argument is, is Jesus knew that John was a believer and an apostle, a trusted apostle. Did he know that of his blood brothers? He could have, known, he could have had James, Jude, Simon, and Joseph as his blood brothers or his half-brothers, he could have known them and known they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in me as the Messiah. I don't really trust my mother with those guys. But I know John. I trust him. So I don't think that's a good argument. The fourth option as to who these brothers are is the logical one. They're the sons of Joseph and Mary, born after Jesus was born, Jesus being the firstborn of the Virgin Mary, and then Mary had sexual relations with Joseph, and she had other kids and sisters too. Moving on now from that thorny question, we go to Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not with honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. <laughs> Jesus was always quoting Proverbs. I'm pretty sure this is a proverb that was used because it does. It shows human nature. And the reason is, I've used it myself a lot of times. When people know you when you're a kid, they think you're a kid. They don't think you're a big shot. They don't think that you've gone out somewhere in a different city and made a name for yourself and become established and become very well known in your profession or whatever it is. You're just the old guy, the old kid that puts smoke bomb in restaurants and things like that. You know, you just, you just, you hadn't grown up yet. Here's what Adam Clark says, quoting an earlier commentator named Quesnel. Quote, a man, generally speaking, can do but little good among his relatives because it is difficult for them to look with the eyes of faith upon one whom they have been accustomed to behold with the eyes of the flesh. Now, note this proverb is not absolutely 100% true. Sometimes a prophet is received with honor by his countrymen, but it's rare. I think of John Steinbeck, the famous American author. He somehow convinced the members of his hometown, and I can't think of the members. I've been to his hometown. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it's out in California, and they wouldn't even speak to him. He wrote something, and somehow they thought he was a communist. And they wouldn't put his books in the library. They would walk to the other side of the street. And he grew up in that town. I'm sure that was pretty painful. But he ended up, after he died, they got a big statue there. They got a big library, big memorial. They got a house. When I was there, they didn't have that memorial yet, there yet. But they had his house that he grew up in for tourists to go see. And, you know, he was a big shot after a while. But, it, but at first he wasn't. So even though all the rest of the country thought he was a great literary genius. But at any rate, this is human nature, and Jesus is defending himself against the charge that he was just a nobody in Nazareth. And he said, now, wait a minute. 
I still don't understand the Nazarenes. Well, okay, maybe he was just a carpenter's son, but how do you deny what he's done? How do you deny that the teaching that you heard with your own ears? And how do you deny all these miracles, the reports of which are coming in from all over the place? The whole country, the whole countryside is in an uproar because of the incredible things that Jesus has done. And all you can say is, well, he was just a carpenter. They were having trouble, I can see, but I, I have trouble with them having trouble. Going on to the next verse in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. So he was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, Mark says he was not able to do any miracles there. Matthew just says he didn't do many miracles there. Not able to do miracles? Jesus is not able to do a miracle? Well, i got to think about that because Jesus could do any kind of miracle he wanted to. He was, he was God. He could have called down angels to deliver him off the cross. A legion of angels, as he said. It wasn't because of Jesus' lack of power that he was not able to do miracles. It was because of their unworthiness, and he's not going to do miracles in the face of unbelief. And John Gill points out an, an additional fact. Also, he would increase their condemnation if he did more miracles, because they would be sinning against a greater light. Jesus always responded to faith and positively and negatively to unbelief. That's easy to prove from the Scripture. That is one of the true things that the hyperfaith heresy latched onto. All heretics have one truth and then they embellish that truth with a bunch of error and this is the the truth that they've got is that jesus responds to our faith not faith in our faith not faith in a formula not faith in an impersonal force but faith in the loving in the in the living son of god here's a quote from adam clark faith seems to put the almighty power of god into the hands of men whereas unbelief appears to tie up even the hands of the almighty now that's quite a statement tie up the hands of the almighty well in a certain sense at any rate, the point is, believe in Jesus, especially when you got all that evidence in front of you. Believe in him. If you don't believe in him, he's not going to do much for you, including saving your soul. And now we move on to Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Now, this is not in Matthew. It's the detail we pick up in Mark. Jesus is, uh, people have noted that Jesus' emotions were rarely recorded in the Gospels. I don't know why, but they were rarely recorded. And here... His amazement is only one of two times that his attitude, his amazement, was recorded. There was here, he was amazed at their unbelief, and once in Luke, he was amazed because somebody believed. Luke 7, verse 9, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, talking about the centurion who had enough faith to get for his daughter to be healed at a distance. So Jesus was a human being. He had emotions, He was, but he and he expected people to believe in him. He was shocked when people couldn't believe in him. I've made that remark many times when I think about how many times Jesus looked at his disciples and says, what's the matter with you guys? You have little faith? How come you don't believe? It is never recorded that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. That was probably it. The homies had their chance and they blew it. John Gill says that they exhibited such, quote, wretched stupidity. I'll say amen to that. Now we're going, still in verse 6, the last part of the verse. Now he was going around the villages in a circuit teaching. Now, this is what Robertson calls the beginning of the third tour of Galilee after instructing the twelve and sending them forth by twos. So here we're going to have the Jesus' third tour, but he's going to separate out. He's going to split off from the apostles. He's going to send them out by themselves. So we go to verse 7, and, and let me tell you here that there's a parallel. The parallel is in Matthew 9, starting with verse 35 and going all the way over into chapter 11 in Matthew. So I'm not going to go over all of Matthew again. That would just be basically reteaching Matthew. I've already done that. 
in an audio on Matthew, on Matthew chapters uh, 10, uh, 9, 10, and 11. So what I'm going to do is go through Mark and just pick out what Mark says about this commissioning of the 12, and we'll just uh, give sort of a skinny version of this commissioning of the 12 apostles. Here's some of the details that Mark leaves out. He leaves out a lot. According to John Gill, he gives no names of the 12 apostles. He gives no notices of the places that they go to or not that they should go to or not go to. He says nothing of the subject matter of the ministry. There is no healing of the sick, raising of the dead, casting out of the devils of devils. You can see all that in Matthew, mostly in chapter 10, with a little bit at the end of 9 and beginning of 11. Now, why were the 12 sent out in pairs? perhaps to bolster their credibility. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says, and John Gill also, that going out in pairs would establish the miracles and teaching of the disciples by the testimony of more than one witness. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And also, as Gill, Clark, and the NIV Study Bible say, also it would, it would mean that the apostles would have mutual support during their training period. And application time, if you're going out and do ministry, it's always better to do two or three rather than one. I know sometimes people go out by ones. It happens. It happened in the New Testament every now and then, but it didn't happen often. And uh, it's better to have somebody else around. Now, notice here that Jesus gave the apostles authority over unclean spirits. He doesn't say anything about healing. In Matthew, he says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. So there was healing as well as exorcism. I don't think it makes that big. It means that much to distinguish between healing and exorcism, because oftentimes exorcism was the method by which people were healed. The other interesting question about this is, since Jesus gave those twelve to send people out to heal and to drive out unclean spirits, does that also apply to ordinary disciples today? Or are the cessationists right and ordinary disciples today can't do anything but read the Bible and teach the Bible? Well, too many people have done miracles. People I know, I myself, people I know have driven out demons. Don't tell me. Ordinary Christians can't do that. These 12 were anointed by Jesus. This was before Pentecost. And you're telling me that after Pentecost, when all those people received the filling of the Holy Spirit, they didn't go out and do miracles and cast out demons? Sure they did. Cessationism should cease. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible in Mark 6, verse 7, has 12 capitalized. He summoned the 12. Why is it capitalized, and why is it called the 12? Well, because these were special, a special 12, and Jesus is trying to fit in with the typology and symbolism of the Old Testament. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. The number 12 is either an allusion to the 12 spies that were sent by Moses into the land of Canaan, or to the twelve stones in Aaron's breastplate, or to the twelve fountains the Israelites found in the wilderness, or to the twelve oxen on which the molten sea stood in Solomon's temple, or to the twelve gates in Ezekiel's temple, or rather to the twelve patriarchs and the tribes which sprung from them. That is, they were the fathers of the Jewish nation, which was typical of God's chosen people. So these, these apostles, were to be the instruments, the instruments of spreading the gospel, not only Judea, not only to Judea, but in all the world, and of planting Christian churches there. So Jesus deliberately chose 12 to match the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, I love Revelation 21:14, And the wall of the city, that's the new Jerusalem, which symbolizes the new covenant, the church on present age all the way to the end of the world and on into the future. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And, of course, above those foundation stones you had gates. And on the gates, above the gates, were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So all of that was fit, fitting into God's divine plan here. That's why they're called the 12. Moving on to chapter Mark chapter 6, verse 8. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. The reason for this was is that Jesus wanted them to travel light and live off the land. Why? Well, all carrying all that stuff would be burdensome to travel around. It's easier to get support on the road. They weren't going to be gone long. And John Gill adds an interesting possible reason is that it would teach them to live on divine providence. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew 10, verses 9 through 10 says, Don't take along gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't even take any money. Don't take a traveling bag. That bag, I always picture a suitcase kind of thing, but according to Adam Clark, it was a bag around the, the neck that they put food in. Don't take an extra shirt, sandals, or a walking stick for the worker is worthy of, of his food. Now, the problem here is is the, that Matthew says don't take an extra shirt, comma, sandals, comma, or a walking stick. So if you read that as don't take an, a walking stick, you have a conflict with Mark which says, don't take anything except a walking stick. In other words, you can take a walking stick but no food, no money. Matthew says, don't take an extra shirt, comma, don't take sandals, comma, don't take a walking stick. The easiest way to reconcile that is to distribute the adjective extra over shirt, sandals, and walking stick. Don't take an extra shirt, don't take extra sandals, and don't take an extra walking stick. And that makes sense. He wouldn't tell them don't take any sandals. they got to have sandals to walk. So the extra would go with sandals. Don't take extra sandals. And you and likewise, it, would, it should go with extra walking stick. Why would they take two walking sticks? Well, the second stick could be used for defense to beat people on the head in case there were robbers tried to rob them. There's other ways to possibly reconcile that too, which I don't think are as good. You could just say the translation is different in Mark that the Greek word means walking stick, where in Matthew it means a stick for defense. It's understood. The word is loose enough in its definition so that Mark could have meant Jesus could have said in Mark, don't take anything except a walking stick. And Matthew is saying, don't take a defense stick. But you can take a walking stick. That's one way you can reconcile it. Also, there's some textual variants that say that sticks should be plural. Don't take walking sticks, which means that it's okay to take one walking stick. Don't take two, but one's okay. The easiest way to do is just say, don't take an extra walking stick. The idea is travel light. The worker is worthy of his food. In the New Testament, we know from the apostles who went out spreading the gospel in the book of Acts, for example, they never took money. They never took money from people they were ministering to. They never asked for money, but they did ask for and receive hospitality. Nothing wrong with that. I remember Groshite the great the famous commentator in the New International Commentary series made the point that seeking for, asking for hospitality is not the same thing as asking for money. It's a different thing. So all this stuff about you being worthy of support was under, under conditions. You don't ask for it with the people you're ministering to if you're going to follow the apostolic pattern. And you, but it's okay to ask for hospitality when you need to go somewhere. And you can... I've done a whole video on this, actually, on YouTube. You can find places in the New Testament where Paul did all that, and it's, it's re relatively easy to establish. But the general idea is is that the labor is worthy of support. That's not salaries. These people didn't go out and take salaries. They took hospitality. 
He's worthy of his food, for the worker is worthy of his food. That place in Timothy where it says the work, the elder is worthy of his wages, that's metaphorical. He compares it to a oxen, not muzzling an oxen who's eating grain off the ground. You don't pay oxen wages. When he says you don't muzzle the ox for the labor is worthy of his wages, you don't say the oxen is trying to get wages, and neither is the minister of the gospel taking wages as a salary. He's not a hired hand, but he can take gifts. Should take gifts if he if he deserves them. You could, you, and likewise, hospitality. Moving on to Mark verse chapter six verse nine, they were to wear sandals, but not to put on an extra shirt that fits with Matthew ten, where it says, "Don't take extra shirt," and also probably extra sandals. We go to Mark chapter six verses ten through eleven. Then he said to them, "Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Why should they stay in one house and not move around? Here are some possible reasons. First of all, it would look like they were difficult to please and ungrateful if they left the first host and went to a second host. They might bring reproach upon the first host by leaving." It would look like they were had left because they were ill-used. And not to mention the fact they would waste time, valuable time, going from house to house looking for accommodations that were perfect. Matthew 10, verse 11, the parallel passage, also says that when, you, when the apostles were to find a house to give them hospitality, they should find one who is worthy. What does worthy mean? A God-fearing person? Well, maybe, but maybe not, because maybe they were trying to convert people who didn't love God. Was it people worthy of receiving Christ? Well, how do they know that before they get to the house, whether this person is worthy of receiving Christ? It probably means people who are worthy because they're hospitable. They're liberal with their money and their food, and so that's the type of person you want to go try to stay with. If the disciples, if it was find out somebody who's worthy because they have good character, it could be that also because it would hurt the apostle's reputation to stay at someone's of bad character. Now, what does Jesus mean when he tells the apostles to shake the dust off their feet if they don't listen to you? Well, this is a common metaphor, a, a Jewish metaphor. I'll give you what is it most probably means. It most probably means a symbolic act of rejection. This was practiced by the Pharisees. If the Pharisees went to an unclean Gentile area, they were walking on Gentile dirt. That Gentile dirt would be on their saddles. They'd come back into Israel. They'd defile Israel with the dust of the heathen country. And they themselves would be defiled. So in order not to do that, they would shake the dust off. For example, if a Pharisee went to Syrophoenicia, he goes to Syrophoenicia. He's getting ready to come back into Israel. He would shake the dust off his feet to show that he was not defiled by those, that, those dirty dogs in Syrophoenicia. And here, Jesus just uses it as an act of solemn warning. You reject God's message, you're just like a heathen Gentile to a Pharisee. You've rejected God, so you apostles shake the dust off your feet. And this shows that you can't witness to everybody. Some people just aren't going to listen. You don't cast your pearls before swine. This is tough when it's somebody you care about, and they just don't listen. They're not in the elect yet. Well, they're either in the elect or they're not in the elect, but you don't know whether they're in the elect yet, and they're not listening to you. Leave. No use making an enemy out of them. John Gill has an interesting take on this. He says the shaking off the dust means I'm not even going to carry away the dust in your house. I'm not interested in your money. I'm not interested in your hospitality, your food, not even your dust. I'm leaving it because you're not rejecting it because you're rejecting the gospel. That's to show that the apostles were not interested in money. I, I think Gill is so creative. 
but I don't think he's right. We now move to verses 12 and 13 of Mark 6, and we'll finish it up after these two verses. So they went out and preached that people should repent. That's the apostles. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them. Preaching that people should repent, that's a good example for us. We should, When we witness to people, we should ask them to repent, as well as believe. The New Testament has many places where people that are being witnessed to evangelized are supposed to believe not a problem if you believe in your heart confess with the mouth that jesus is lord you believe in your heart but there are other places that say that, that they repented and believed and here jesus is saying you should repent so I, I take repentance and belief as all part of the same package just two different ways of looking at it you turn your back on the world means you're believing in jesus instead of the world they were driving out many demons and they were anointing many sick people with olive oil notice the connection between exorcism and healing that does not mean that everybody that's possessed of a demon is sick, and it doesn't mean that every person who's sick is got, has got a demon. However, if you look at the two circles like in Venn diagrams, there is some overlap because exorcism is often connected with healing. Why olive oil? Why anoint them with olive oil? Anointing, of course, was done uh, for uh, to establish prophets and kings and such, but it was also used for healing. We often think of oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which it is, but it's also a symbol of healing because the people would, would anoint their wounds with healing. For example, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verse 34, the Good Samaritan went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, the oil and the wine, olive oil and wine. So oil is a perfect symbol for healing. The physical is often a sacramental sign of the, of the spiritual, and so... That's why you anoint people with oil. It's interesting that anointing with oil is only spoken of here and in the book of James, only twice in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 14, Is anyone, anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The anointing is a symbolic thing. It is not magical. It is not necessary. Many times Jesus healed people. He didn't anoint them with oil. It was just, this is just sort of an incidental detail. Anoint them with all. It's a symbol that we're going to pray to heal you. And I finished this section up by pointing out that, or suggesting to you that there's nothing wrong with ordinary Christians. I've already said this, but I'll say it again. Ordinary Christians going out and praying for people to get well. How much faster the church might grow if Christians would do this instead of trying to pray for diamonds to fall out of the sky and for oil to ooze out of Bibles and all this charismaniac nonsense. If they would just Cast out demons and pray for people to heal. Do mir uh, biblical miracles. And on the other hand, do miracles, period. Instead of saying they all died out in the first century. We seem to be afflicted with a malady in the American church. You've got two extremes. The Satanist on one hand and charismaniatic goofballs on the other extreme. Follow the Bible. You can't go wrong, folks. Hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll start with Mark, Mark chapter 6, verse 14 in the next audio.